True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. An intruder breaks into a home and stabs a disabled man to death in his bedroom. The robbery gone wrong seemingly devastates the man's widow, who was watching television just meters away at the time. But then police get a call from the deceased man's grieving mother, and what she has to say will break open a tale of a lifetime of narcissism and a family with murder on its mind. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 46, The Murder of Stephen Harvey. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our most recent Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Lauren Patrick, Mark Soper, Kelly Snyders, Donovan Harvey, Courtney Norco, and Antoinette van der Plaas for their support on Patreon, as well as Ilka Zenskarali and Sarah Duyaga on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It is greatly appreciated. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. The case I'm covering today is closely related to some of the murder cases we've been seeing lately, in which women have been accused of either killing or arranging the murder of their husbands. It also raises a few other issues, though, among them the validity and usefulness of the battered woman defense, and also how some mothers can be inherently poisonous in the lives of their children. In researching this case, I used the book Killer Woman by Chris Carsten, as well as a few media articles and research papers on the battered woman defense in South Africa. This case is one of those, though, that may just leave us with more questions than answers. So let's get into episode 46, The Murder of Stephen Harvey. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Our story begins not in South Africa but in 1952, in Cheltenham, in England, when a girl called Lynn Catherine was born to her parents. Cheltenham is a predominantly holiday town, and has been since its mineral springs were discovered in the 1700s. 
There are about 116,000 permanent residents of the town today, and the town also has the fourth highest number of multi-millionaires per capita, with 41 residents falling into that wealth category. Lynn's family, though, although not living on the breadline by any means, was certainly not terribly wealthy. Money, though, was the least of the young girl's problems as she grew up, and it's alleged that her abusive father began to molest and then rape her when she was 13 years old. It is not uncommon, of course, for children that are sexually abused to become promiscuous at a young age. There are psychological explanations for this, among them that the child has come to believe that their only value is represented by their body and its sexual offerings. Another possibility is that young boys and girls in this situation may be trying to form relationships outside of the home as a way to secure an exit strategy. Whichever was the case for young Lynn, by the age of 15 she was engaging in sexual relationships with several different men, and she fell pregnant. In 1967, the shame of being an unwed mother, especially in a small town, would have overridden any other trauma involved in the pregnancy, and the child was taken from Lynn at birth and placed into the adoption system. Sadly, Lynn had no idea whether the child was a product of her relationship with the lover or a rape by her father. Just a few years later, and barely out of her teens, Lynn married for the first time. This marriage produced two children, but it was not to last, and in 1974, when Lynn was just 22, she divorced her first husband, and her two children were removed from her care. Even as Lynn was divorcing her first husband, though, she already had a second in her sights, and two years later, she married Spencer Hoare. Shortly afterwards, she gave birth to a son with Spencer, called John. Although this was her fourth child, he would be the first that she would actually raise to adulthood. Three years into this marriage, Lynn became pregnant again. This child was not fathered by her husband, though. She'd started an affair with a lodger in their home, and it had been this man that had fathered the child. When Lynn gave birth to her daughter, Marianne, and she revealed the child's true father to both the lodger and her husband, both men hit the road, leaving Lynn alone with two young children. I don't think I need to tell you that it didn't take long for Lynn to replace her husband, and by 1981, she was in a relationship with Stephen Harvey, who was three years younger than her. They had another two children together, and married in 1986. The two younger children are not named, as they were minors at the time of the eventual crime. It would later be claimed that the 
couple's decision to move to South Africa was only partially because of the large English community there and the lower cost of living. The other side of the decision was allegedly sexual. Lynn would claim that Stephen had unusual sexual fantasies and he wanted to be around more exotic women. Lynn had no problem with the idea of moving to South Africa, but she did apparently have three conditions for the move. She wanted a swimming pool, she wanted a dishwasher, and she didn't want Stephen to act out any of his fantasies with South African women. So it was that in 1990, the Harvey family set out for sunny South Africa. John was 14 at this time, and his younger sister Marianne was 11. The family moved into a house in Ritzbreit, a suburb of Creel, in what is now called Mpumalanga. At the time, the town was predominantly based around mines, which have since closed. In the hopes of finding work, people had flooded from rural areas to the town, and several informal settlements had sprung up around it. Stephen Harvey, having been trained as an electrician in England, easily found work. He also occasionally employed local men to assist with repairs and work at his property as well. One such man was Mpo Mkwena. Mpo was born in 1962 into a country where the colour of his skin automatically classified him as a second-class citizen. Despite the abject poverty that he was raised in, the man says that, to him, crime had never been an option. His parents had raised him with values and taught him that you did not steal from another to fill your own stomach. With little education to speak of, by the time the Harveys arrived from England, Mpo was a 27-year-old man with his own family, trying desperately to make ends meet. Mpo would carry out work at the Harveys' property occasionally, earning some cash here and there to feed his family. He would later say, without elaborating, that he had been shocked by some of the behaviour he'd seen at their home. In 1992, Stephen Harvey was involved in a car accident. His left leg had to be amputated, and he lost his job. Lynn would later say that this had been a turning point in their marriage, as Stephen had started to drink heavily, and she had joined him. It would also later emerge that Lynn had been discussing her plans for her husband for several years. She had at some points decided that her third marriage was no longer working for her, but this time she wasn't interested in divorce. The end to this marriage would be much more final. It is unknown when she decided to draw her children into the plan, nor how many other plans she'd attempted before the night of the 25th of September, 1999. But what we do know now is that Stephen and Lynn were at home alone that night. 
the older children had taken the younger children, out to a bowling alley. Stephen was extremely intoxicated that night. Later evidence would lead to the conclusion that he had been encouraged to drink even more than he usually did, so that he would be completely helpless to what was coming. What was coming was an intruder with nefarious intentions. But at the moment that the man entered Stephen's bedroom and found him sitting on his bed, Stephen would have recognised him immediately. It was his part-time employee, Mpo Mukwena. Stephen Harvey was stabbed viciously, and despite his attempts to defend himself with his crutches, Mpo got the better of him. The struggle ended with Stephen laying on the floor, bleeding to death from a slashed throat. Mpo stole a television and a computer before disappearing into the night. The young man who had struggled with poverty, but never so much as stolen a slice of bread, had just committed the ultimate crime. Lynn, for her part, played the role of grieving widow impeccably. When she called the police to report the break-in and her husband's murder, police that attended would later say she'd appeared as distressed as they would have expected. Paramedics arrived, but there was nothing that could be done for Stephen, and soon after forensics had been completed, a mortuary van arrived to remove his body. There was no sign of forced entry, but police found an unlocked back door, and it was believed that the intruder had gained entry there. Lynn claimed the door was always left unlocked, unless the family were all inside the house. She told police that she hadn't heard anything. The television had been turned up, and she'd only known anything was wrong when she'd gone to the bedroom to go to sleep and found her husband in a pool of blood. Initially, it seemed like this had been a robbery gone wrong. The perpetrator had intended to steal some items from the house, and perhaps assumed that no one was home, the police thought. When the intruder was surprised by Stephen's presence, a scuffle must have ensued. And this may well have been the ongoing assumption. If it weren't for the rather strange behaviour of Lynn, and a telephone call from England. When Lynn gave police her statement, she was asked whether her husband had any life insurance policies. She said in her sworn statement that she was not aware of any policies. This was soon proven to be a lie, though, when the day after Stephen's funeral, she arrived at the offices of an insurance company in Thunderbell Park. The agent that assisted her that day said that she appeared unkempt and her clothes were dirty. She was there to find out when her husband's policies would pay out. The agent looked over their records and told Lynn that the policy had fallen behind and was not valid at that point. Enraged, Lynn insisted that she knew that this was not the case, and she would return with proof. And she did. 
Lynn went home and collected proof that the late policy payments had been brought up to date, just three weeks before her husband's murder. The agent acquiesced and said that she'd look into the matter. If the woman thought that that was the last time she would see Lynn Harvey, though, she was wrong. Lynn came to the insurance company's offices every single day after that, insisting that she needed the money and that her children were starving. Some days she pleaded and some days she raged, slamming her fists on the counter violently. Although the policy was paid up to date, there was still a glitch in payout. Stephen had never taken the mandated HIV test at the inception of the policy. This, though, could be circumvented, and the insurance company was eventually able to ascertain from the autopsy that Stephen was HIV negative. In December 1999, 500,000 rand was paid into the bank account of Lynn Harvey. She and her children went on a Christmas spending spree. The police, though, were starting to take note of Lynn's behaviour, and a telephone call from one June Cox living in England piqued their suspicions even more. June Cox was Stephen Harvey's now grieving mother. Having been informed of her son's murder, she felt compelled to contact police and ask them to please look into Lynn and her children. She was convinced that they had something to do with Stephen's death. Lynn Harvey managed to blow through 250,000 rand that December. She bought her son John a new car and splurged on gifts for all the other children too. She'd been getting ready to sell their house and buy a new property when the police came knocking. They didn't start with Lynn though. Instead, in mid-January, they asked John to come in and talk to them. He would never leave the custody of the police. Within a week, Mpumkwena, Lynn Harvey and Marianne Harvey had all been arrested. The two younger children were placed in the custody of relatives of Stephen that lived in South Africa. During Lynn's bail application, it became clear that she planned to stick with a very specific defence. She, Lynn claimed, was a victim of domestic violence. Her husband had beaten and abused her throughout their marriage, she said. But when he'd had his accident, things had gotten much worse. The tipping point for her, she claimed, in court was the day that she'd noticed Stephen behaving inappropriately with their 11-year-old daughter. That was when she decided that he had to die, so that they could all be free of the man she called a monster. She also said that she believed Stephen had sexually abused Marianne as well. Marianne decided to turn against her mother, brother and Mpo, and became a state witness in the trial. She denied that Stephen was a needlessly violent man, 
She said that their entire household was aggressive and violent in nature. But if she was honest, Stephen had only ever struck out when he was taunted or assaulted by his family members. Her mother, on the other hand, was violent and would regularly strike Stephen when she was angry. Marianne said that Lynn had also emotionally abused Stephen by flaunting her extramarital sexual escapades, especially after his accident, when his self-esteem was at an all-time low. In her testimony, Marianne was able to shed light on the other plans that had been made to kill Stephen. At one point, she was supposed to kill her stepfather and make it look like self-defense. When that fell through, they were going to have John's girlfriend try to seduce Stephen, and then Lynn would walk in on them and kill him in a fit of rage. A crime of passion would get to no more than a few years, they'd surmised. John's girlfriend, however, backed out of that plan, and eventually it was decided that John would hire someone to kill Stephen, and he didn't need to look very far, because Mpo was standing right outside their door, doing work on the property. When asked why she and her brother had agreed to take part in the crime, when they clearly did not have the same hatred for the man that Lynn did, Marianne said, that her mother had always been an excellent manipulator, and she was very difficult to say no to. The girl said that Lynn had filled John's head on a daily basis, with stories of how Stephen was abusing her in a myriad of ways. Marianne did not believe the stories, but John had. She confirmed that Lynn and the entire family had been well aware of the large life policy in Stephen's name. Lynn had mentioned it over and over, and Marianne had drawn the conclusion that this was her real motive. Lynn sat in the courtroom throughout her daughter's evidence, shaking her head. Her attorney would then attempt to discredit Marianne by claiming that she had multiple personality disorder. Mpo had been approached by John several months before the murder took place. He'd initially offered him 40,000 rand to do the deed, and Mpo had declined. When he upped the ante to 60,000, he says he reluctantly agreed. Mpo claimed that he felt very bad about the murder, and he hadn't wanted to do it at all. Once he had given John his word, though, he felt bound to the man, whether there was money involved or not. Mpo's fee was supposed to come out of the life insurance money that was paid to Lynn. Despite the Harvey family's very merry Christmas, Mpo had not seen a cent of what was owed to him. He explained that John had phoned him almost every day leading up to the murder, making sure that he understood what needed to be done. John had not specified what type of weapon should be used. He just wanted Stephen dead. On the designated night, he had arrived at the house and Lynn had let him in and showed him to Stephen's bedroom. 
about his skewed alleged moral obligation to keep his word, Mpo said, quote, I felt that if I backed out, I would be a bad person in their eyes. End quote. When Lynn took the stand in her own defence, she did as much as she could to work the battered woman defence. She spoke about her childhood abuse and the children that had been adopted out and taken away from her. She claimed that she divorced two of her husbands because they were harming her children. She then told the court how she'd been sexually abused by Stephen throughout her marriage and had even suffered permanent physical damage from the abuse. She claimed that her husband was a sexual sadist and that he could only achieve an orgasm when she was in pain. She said that he was not just an alcoholic, but had also become addicted to his pain medication and used Dacha. Lynn explained that shortly before his death, she had argued with Stephen about an incident that had occurred when Marianne was three years old. He had been bathing with the child, and Lynn said that the child had accidentally touched his private parts, and Stephen had not discouraged it. She said that she had witnessed similar behaviour with her other children over the years. She also claimed that Stephen had abused animals on their property, as well as some of their workers. Whether any evidence of this was ever produced is unknown, but unlikely. Speaking of evidence, Lynn was also unable to provide medical proof of the injuries she claimed Stephen had inflicted on her. In one case, she said that he had so savagely anally raped her that parts of her intestine had become damaged, but she'd never visited a doctor for this injury and could not explain how she knew of the damage without a medical consultation. Lynn claimed that on the evening of the murder, when her children had left for the bowling alley, her 11-year-old had shouted, Kill him, Mommy, kill him, as she left the house. Lynn claims that she had no idea how the girl knew about the plan, but took her enthusiasm as motivation to continue with the murder. I cannot explain to you how weird I find that statement. Now, it's not abnormal for children to know things that we think that we're hiding really well, but this is the murder of the child's father. I have no idea whether the child really said this, and there's no mention anywhere of either of the young children confirming that they'd had any knowledge of the murder plot. But whether she did or didn't say it, what state of mind do you have to be in to say that you saw it as encouraging? Your 11-year-old is cheering you on to murder someone. And instead of sitting back and saying, oh my God, what am I doing here? You say, well, the 11-year-old child thinks it's a good idea, so let's just go with it. Of all the absolute strangeness of this case, that one really tops the pile for me. And from a victim perspective, if that child really did say that, 
I really hope that in the ensuing years, she's been given significant access to counselling and trauma therapy, because there is some serious pain in that statement. When asked about the previous murder plots, Lynn claimed that they were all just jokes that she'd made when she was intoxicated. She also claimed that she never demanded the insurance money. She had only ever wanted the money that she had paid to bring the payments up to date. I think that Lynn made an enormous slip-up in her carefully planned story when she said that. Of course, she was saying it to sound less like a cold-blooded killer and to support her defence that she'd had Stephen killed only to stop the abuse. She claimed that she had only ever drawn 10,000 rand from the money to buy her children food and Christmas gifts. She also claimed that she had never planned to pay Mpo from the money because that would be, quote, evil. And instead, she had planned to sell the house and use the proceeds to pay the man. Now that's all good and well, but the big mistake that she made in the statement is in saying that she only wanted the money back that she had paid to update the premiums. Lynn said that she knew nothing about the policy when police had asked her, and if she didn't want any of the policy money and it wasn't her motive, why not just let it lapse? Why pay up the premiums? Three weeks before you had your husband killed. John did not testify on his own behalf, but he did make statements which were read into evidence during the trial. He said that he'd never wanted to be involved in the murder, and he only acted as a go-between between Mpo and his mother. John tried to protect his mother right up to the end, and allegedly confessed because he thought that he could take all of the heat on himself and avoid involving his mother and sister. The longer he sat in jail, though, and as the trial wore on, it seems that John started to realise that he'd been manipulated and there was no reason for him to take all of the blame. In a statement, he said that he loved his stepfather and that the man had raised and loved him as his own son. In a suitably warped statement, he finished up by saying that his stepfather didn't deserve to die so brutally. He could have just died from one gunshot. John Hall, Lynn Harvey, and Mpom McQuena were all found guilty of murder. In the sentencing hearing, June Cox, having come from England to attend the trial, took the stand in an effort to reinstate her son's memory. She categorically denied all of the claims Leonard made about Stephen's abuse and sexual deviance. She made it known that two of Lynn's children had been removed from her care while they lived in England because they had been severely neglected. She said that Lynn had been the sexual deviant, and after the family moved to South Africa, she'd had several affairs, including one with her daughter's boyfriend. The judge handed down life sentences to John, Lynn, and Mpo.
The judge came down hard on Lynn in his sentencing, saying that he was not convinced even slightly that she'd been the victim of abuse. And if she had, she had proven in her past relationships that she had no problem divorcing men when she was no longer happy in a relationship, so there should have been no difference in this one. He believed that her true motive was pure greed. She wanted Stephen's life insurance money. He further lambasted her for involving her own children in the plan, essentially ruining her young son's life and leaving her daughter without family and living with guilt for the rest of her life. In Mpo's case, he felt immensely sad that the man's desperation and skewed sense of responsibility had drawn him into such a terrible situation. But he had known what he was doing was wrong, and therefore he had to be punished by law. As for John, the judge admitted to having several sleepless nights in deciding how to sentence the young man. He acknowledged that he'd been deeply influenced and manipulated by his mother, but he did benefit financially from the murder, and he could have changed his mind at any time. All three lodged appeals against their sentences, and all three were denied. John had wanted to appeal because he felt that his attorney had given him poor advice when he told him not to testify, as the judge had specifically said in his judgment that this counted against him. Lynn attempted to lodge several appeals after her sentencing, stating that the judge had not taken all of her proof of abuse into account. All of her appeals were declined. A few years after Lynn started serving her sentence, True Love magazine did an article on women serving life sentences. They interviewed Lynn, and she stuck to her story about the abuse, going further than she had even in her trial, saying that she'd had reconstructive surgery to her genitals due to cigarette burns inflicted by Stephen. She claimed that she had once lodged a complaint against him, the nature of which she did not elaborate on, but nothing was done. She also claimed that Mary Ann had laid charges of assault against Stephen, but these were also not investigated. She again repeated for the journalist the claim that her 11-year-old child had incited her to kill her husband. The writing of the article coincided with a non-profit organisation selecting five female inmates for assistance in appealing their sentences. All five of the inmates selected had been convicted of murdering their partners and had all claimed to have been the victims of domestic violence, but this was not accepted by their initial sentencing judge. Lynn's case did not meet the criteria for assistance. In my mind, which is no way expert in these matters, I automatically thought that in order to qualify for a so-called battered woman defence, Surely the murder cannot be premeditated. I picture a victim of abuse snapping one day and picking up a gun while her husband's sleeping and killing him 
because she truly believes that is the only way out. That is not entirely accurate, though, as I would learn in researching this case. I used a research paper by Flora Schaber entitled Critical Analysis of Expert Evidence Used in Support of the Battered Woman Syndrome Defense to better understand the concepts of what is loosely referred to as battered woman syndrome. There have been many, many cases in South African history in which women have had other parties kill their husbands and still manage to prove a battered woman defense. The distinction in law is firstly whether a defendant has criminal capacity. In other words, the responsibility for criminal actions. Criminal incapacity defences fall into two groups, pathological and non-pathological. Pathological criminal incapacity will be found if a person has a mental illness that is found to have made them unable to appreciate the consequences of their actions. Non-pathological criminal incapacity will include various other defences, such as self-defence. The so-called battered woman defence falls into this group. Some of the other elements which may prove non-pathological criminal incapacity are emotional stress, youthfulness, intoxication, provocation and the battered woman syndrome. Essentially, The woman is attempting to prove that she behaved in a normal way, in an abnormal situation. So a lawyer will never say they are using a battered woman defence, but what they will say is that they are attempting to prove non-pathological criminal incapacity due to the existence of battered woman syndrome in the defendant. Battered woman syndrome was first acknowledged as a syndrome in the 1970s, and it was initially termed as learned helplessness. The full description of the syndrome is as follows, quote, that the woman could not leave the relationship due to learned helplessness, nor could they fight back when actually being attacked. In the face of growing violence, the woman's hope was that the only way she could secure herself and her children was to get rid of the partner when he was more vulnerable, for example, while sleeping. End quote. Battered woman syndrome is classified as a form of post-traumatic stress disorder, which gives a tiny bit of leeway in terms of imminent threat. In order to suffer from battered woman syndrome and use this as a defense, a woman does not have to have a gun pressed to her head because in the post-traumatic stress disorders, the sufferer will constantly feel under threat, regardless of whether there is an actual physical threat. Women with battered woman syndrome will constantly feel that their partners could kill them at any moment. In attempting to use this defense in court, the defendant would first have to prove that they do indeed suffer from the syndrome, then they would have to prove that they acted in the same way that an average person suffering from the syndrome would act. If a woman is unable to prove that she suffers from battered woman syndrome, 
there are other defences open to her, including self-defence, non-pathological automatism, meaning you acted automatically without thought, diminished capacity, which means that you were unable to understand the wrongness of your actions in that moment, provocation, meaning that something the victim did elicited such a strong emotional response in you that you had no control over your actions in that moment. Warranted excuse defense, which means that the defendant was reacting to a criminal act that was being perpetrated upon her. And finally, necessity defense, which is slightly different from self-defense, in that the victim could be harming someone other than you, including your children or your property. So when women use hitmen to kill their husbands, they first need to qualify themselves as suffering from battered woman syndrome, and then they need to prove that their actions constituted that of a normal person with the syndrome. Lynn was unable to prove even that she suffered from battered woman syndrome. One of the first requirements of proving the syndrome is that you must produce expert evidence to support it, and Lynn did not do this. She had no medical, psychological, or psychiatric reports to prove that she had experienced this element of learned helplessness. Even if there was an element of abuse in Lynn's marriage, she did not prove without a shadow of a doubt that her motive had solely been that of getting away from her alleged abuser. Without seeing complete court transcripts, it's difficult to know exactly what evidence Lynn's attorney presented on her behalf. And honestly, even if she had in some way proven that she was being abused, the fact that she involved her children in the murder takes this to a totally different level in my opinion. If, as she claims, she was trying to protect her children and herself from Stephen, why would she drag her adult children into the murder? Why would she not approach Mpo herself, directly? She could have kept the other two completely in the dark, and then, even if she was caught, at least her children would not be involved. Would that not be what a truly loving and caring mother would do? Instead, she emotionally manipulated her son by telling him stories about how horrendous Stephen was. And in my opinion, she did this on purpose. She wanted a scapegoat, and she picked her son. In my opinion, in Lynn's mind, if she wasn't directly dealing with the hitman, she would have a lower level of culpability. Maybe she could even claim complete ignorance. I don't think that Lynn Harvey was a desperate woman clinging to her adult children for assistance in a life-threatening situation. She was highly manipulative and extremely clever in how she plotted this murder, and if she hadn't been so impatient for her money, or if June Cox hadn't made the call that she did, she may well have left her son to take the fall. I do believe that the Harvey relationship was very toxic, and that toxicity 
probably came from both sides to a certain extent. The substance abuse could not have helped, and perhaps Stephen did have sexual proclivities that were out of the norm. I don't necessarily believe the sexual abuse claims that Lynn brings forward, though. Throughout her life, she had been very quick to jump between relationships and sexual partners, and while there's absolutely nothing wrong with a single woman enjoying her sexual life, when you're in a relationship and your partner thinks it's exclusive and you don't, that tends to point to a problem. I would love to know what Lynn's psychiatric evaluation says, because while I'm certainly no psychologist, some of her behaviours throughout her life seem to scream personality disorders to me. She's been called manipulative by many people, including her own children, and her willingness to go as far as having sex with her own daughter's boyfriend reeks of narcissism, in my opinion. Probably the only two truly innocent victims in this case are the two youngest children. Stephen, though, lost his life, and no matter what he did or didn't do, he didn't deserve that. From the comments of the two older children, I tend to think that if anyone was being abused consistently in this relationship, it was probably Stephen. Lynn seemed to have done an excellent job of turning the family against him, and he responded by drinking himself into oblivion. After his accident, he needed a healthy environment and a supportive family, but he found himself in a home where he was ridiculed, taunted, and eventually slaughtered. If this case has taught me anything, it's not to take anything at face value. It would be so easy to want to believe Lynn, because you don't want to believe that a woman would lie about domestic violence or sexual abuse. You certainly don't want to think that a mother would purposefully put her children in harm's way or manipulate them for her own ends. But that, at least as far as I'm concerned, is exactly what she did. And in my opinion, Lynn Harvey is exactly where she belongs. Thank you for listening to episode 46, The Murder of Stephen Harvey. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 